organizational culture can help or hinder your efforts to do the right things by customers and achieve financial results. So, how can leaders seize the cultural opportunities while managing the risks? Hello and welcome to our podcast, Transforming Business with Minta Ellison, Ideas and Challenges that are Shaping Our Future. Here are a few questions for you. One, what can leaders do to impact organisational culture? Two, who is responsible for delivering that cultural change? And three, how do you measure culture? Those are some of the million-dollar questions that keep board directors and executives awake at night, and understandably so. Revelations from the Royal Commission into Banking and Financial Services revealed the devastating impacts of poor organisational culture, including legal non-compliance, dishonest and misleading conduct, and some seriously adverse consequences for customers. But culture doesn't just impact banks, or superannuation funds, or insurers. In fact, Organisations of every size, shape and industry place huge emphasis on their culture. Leaders know that it can materially impact their staff, customers, clients and society, both positively and negatively. As leaders focus more and more upon culture, governance and corporate risk are coming under more scrutiny than ever before. But the lines of responsibility can be confusing. That's one of the reasons that ASIC recently appointed cultural risk expert Elizabeth Arzadon to their governance task force. Her mission? To examine and review the impact of culture upon board oversight of non-financial risk in a range of ASX 100 companies. So, in this episode, we invited Elizabeth to discuss what boards and leaders can do to drive positive behaviour and rise to cultural challenges. We also invited Minta Ellison partner Rahul Chowdhury to join us. Rahul is a leading advisor to major banks and financial institutions in Australia and Canada, and he spends a lot of time deep within the demanding world of governance, regulation and risk. To begin our discussion, I asked Elizabeth to summarise why culture is climbing higher and higher up the agenda for so many leaders right now. Well, I think if you think about what puts things at the top of an agenda there are two big reasons why one is that organizations are forced to put it there by regulators or um, other other reasons Uh, and the other is that they themselves feel that it's a key driver of risk for them even though it might not be something they're forced to look at and on the topic of culture i would say it gets a tick on both those fronts because over the last couple of years we've seen regulators putting it on the agenda so institutions don't really have a choice particularly if you're in the financial sector and there have been some very clear examples where cultural failure has really destroyed value and so that's why I think boards and executives and others are saying that they want to look at culture because they understand that it's an important issue. And if we think about what some of the warning signs might be for leaders. Um, what stands out for you from a culture point of view? And I guess there's a secondary question there too, which is how do you go about measuring culture? How do you know where the warning signs are? 
I think you need to actually answer a couple more questions before you even get to that. So the first thing I think you need to understand if you're looking for warning signs is what the outcome is that you're trying to manage better through culture. So if it's conduct, which is a big risk and issue at the moment, then what you're really asking is, are there any cultural traits or behavioural norms that exist in our organisation that might be hindering our ability to manage our conduct risk well? But if you were looking at culture from the perspective of innovation or, um, or customer satisfaction even, then there might be other cultural traits that you're looking for signs of. So that, that question around the context I think is important. And the second piece I would say is important. It's a little bit more subtle or nuanced, but it's where in your organisation you're concerned with culture. Because if you've got a 50,000 person organisation, then there will be lots of subcultures. And, and actually the outcomes you're looking for in different parts of the organisation might be different as well. So you might be looking for different signs, different cultural signs in different parts of the organisation. So I suppose the outcome from all of that is what appears on the surface to be a fairly straightforward question, in order to answer it in a meaningful way, sometimes you really have to unpack it and really ask what are you trying to do this for and how can we break that problem down so that we, we approach it in a systematic and structured fashion. Rahul, what's your take on this? So I, I think of culture in a in a fairly structured sort of a way. Um, what is the desired culture is, I think, the starting point for any organisation. You then move to how do you um, articulate that desired culture through a tone at the top um, and then reinforced by artefacts as well as um, symbols, behaviours um, and other uh, things that happen within an organisation that reinforce that tone and drive them through the length and breadth of an organization. So that's the starting point. Uh, they need to be proper processes and controls to ensure that those are communicated um, right across the organization in an unambiguous way so that there's no employee that can, can say, I didn't know that or I didn't understand that. Point one. Point two is then how do you actually measure culture and how do you um, establish whether you're on the right path? difficult and that is the holy grail but there are some ways of, of, of getting at least partway there. One way is to conduct staff surveys regularly uh, in a fairly diligent way and to ensure that there is as good a participation from employees as is possible and that they answer questions um, in a completely um, open, candid way and in a way that doesn't make them scared that their responses are going to invoke um, uh, adverse reaction towards them. And then the third is to seek external data points, whether these are customer surveys, whether these are um, issues that regulators have highlighted, etc., and to really go through those in detail. And the point Elizabeth made is a very good one. Uh, one has to unpick the results very carefully to ensure that they make sense. And in my experience, Real value is derived from focusing on what I call the tails, not just what sits beneath the normal distribution. So what does the organization do extremely well, which it can then try and promote across the organization um, in a more effective way? 
and then going to the other end of the tail, what does an organization not do well and what are the results telling us that need to be fixed and actually pay attention to them, not worry about, oh, there are only 3% of our employees that feel this way. Where there's, there's smoke, there's fire, and organizations need to focus on, 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 on those tails. So I just wanted to pick up on something you said there, Raul, because I think you've raised some really important points about how you go about assessing culture. There's two things that I think organisations and leaders grapple with. One is what data do I rely on? Um, And one of the principles I use when I'm assessing culture is triangulation of multiple data points. So instead of trying to figure out what the one or two best sources of information are or most reliable metrics are around culture, I think it's helpful to use a number of them and triangulate it. So surveys and interviews with people and looking at outcome data and looking at the formal environment. And so this triangulation point, I think what it helps to address is the bias that creeps into different perspectives. And I'm not saying bias in a judgmental way. I'm saying that every person, every individual has bias based on the perspective uh, on which they're coming from. So frontline staff will have a certain perspective, leaders will have a certain perspective, customers will have a certain perspective, regulators will have a certain perspective. Another dimension of, of getting true data points, um, so those that are free from, from bias or try to address the bias issue, um, and, and also those that are, that are honest, uh, and you, you mentioned this as well, it's, it's how do you get people to feel safe to, to speak up and to say what they really think? And uh, so this is something that I have often been challenged to think about. If I was to share one thing that I think helps the most, it's providing people with anonymity. So being saying to people that nothing you tell me will come back to you. And so this is uh, something that I think organisations should really think clearly about uh, if they're doing surveys or if they're doing interviews or they're doing focus groups with staff and they want people to be honest, they really need to protect people's anonymity. Elizabeth, is there anything else you want to add as far as measurement goes? One of the things that people often ask me is, well, okay, if there are certain metrics that will give me a an idea there's a problem what other what other types of information would give me the the bigger picture and the way I answer that is to come back to the the construct that you're looking at so what I mean by that is that culture is made up of a number of different dimensions there's the behavioral norms dimension that's sort of the, the the surface of what we see in terms of culture there are the outcomes that are the that Um, are influenced by those behavioural norms. There are perceptions that people have that drive behavioural norms. And then there is the environment in which those behaviours are occurring and the perceptions are developing. And the environment includes two things. It includes formal mechanisms like how you pay people, how you reward them, uh, what what roles you, you give them. 
And then there are informal mechanisms. And the informal mechanisms are things like the stories that people tell, the history of the organisation, the water cooler conversations, the interpretation of leadership behaviour. So to come back to your question around measurement, in order to understand culture as a construct, as an entire concept, you need to collect information that reflects those different components of it. So you need to gather data on what the behavioural norms are, what outcomes are being driven from them, what the perceptions of people are, and what the formal and informal environment is. And so um, I, I guess the, the final point to make would be that to get a full picture of culture, you need to gather qualitative and quantitative information on all aspects of the, the concept and then triangulate it to try to eradicate some of the bias uh, and, and make sure you provide uh, or use techniques that get honest and uh, as, as, as error-free as you can information about, uh, about those topics. It's very interesting because it's clear that uh, culture and dealing with culture is something that you really have to get on the front foot with, isn't it? You need to be proactive um, before cultural issues you know, become crises. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the environment that we're in, culture has become quite a reactive topic. And also, by the way, quite in a, a negative and, and critical one and judgmental one, there's almost an unspoken assumption that if we have a cultural problem, we have bad people or we have bad leaders. And from having been focused on this work for many years, I've started to really come to the conclusion that under certain conditions, it's almost inevitable that there will be cultural challenges. There will be some pressures on behaviour. And it would take a superhuman leader to be able to, I think, navigate perfectly the types of pressures that businesses are sometimes under. So wouldn't it be great if we just viewed cultural risk as something that all businesses face and we could be more proactive about assessing the various factors that might be placing pressure on behaviour and therefore manage them um, to prevent things from arising? Rahul, if we think about some of the uh, cultural risks, if you like, that didn't even exist 10 or 15 years ago, one that stands out for me is social media. Um, does that have a potential impact on conduct and culture? Yes, unquestionably. Uh, I think in the old days, if you had a customer complaint, you could treat that um, in isolation. You could keep it fairly quiet, deal with it as a one-off um, and move on. What social media has done is um, to amplify the voice of the individual tremendously. You can make a post on, you can tweet something or put it on, on um, social media and before you know it, thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people have read it. So that leads to, I think, a couple of issues that need to be managed. One is that disaffected voices can receive greater prominence, um, I believe, um, uh, and create a bandwagon effect. 
And the second is that um, it creates a risk that organizations manage not their broad church, but focus on the squeaky wheel. Yeah, the, the loudest voices get um, get the most attention, and the you know the, the the quiet majority may pass under the radar. I- exactly. It's interesting. There is I, I hear a lot of frustration, I suppose, about the role that social media is playing in. But I wanted to touch on another role that social media can play, and that's actually. Uh, a good one uh, from a cultural perspective I've heard some people talk about the fact that social media means that there is really a level of transparency for organisations in terms of their behaviour and conduct and that some organisations are really aware of that and it can increase their impetus to respond and be very quick to pay attention to what's going on at the front line of their of their organisation. So that's not to say that they wouldn't have done that in the past, but I think it's definitely raised an awareness to them that it's very difficult to hide or to manage situations quietly because of social media. It's interesting you say that because if you think about an organisation and its life and its lifespan, right? you're always going to have some disaffected customers at some point. But if, as an organisation, you can demonstrate that you handle those situations really well, and social media gives you the opportunity to do that, doesn't in a very transparent way, then you actually can, it can actually have a really positive um, impact on your on your reputation. That's a very good point. And, and I think another dimension to that is speed of response. The traditional way of responding to complaints is to pass it on to in-house lawyers or external lawyers to deal with. And that goes through due process, takes an awful lot of time. And in the meantime, the frustration of customers just continues to increase. Uh, what social media is forcing organizations to do is to deal with issues and deal with them quickly. And one way is to use social media to respond to some of the complaints in a timely manner, resolve them, and to move forward. Rahul, uh, let's move on and think about uh, about the role of, of boards of directors here. There's obviously different roles for uh, individual board members, boards collectively, um, and regulators too in addressing risk. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So boards are ultimately responsible to provide leadership and strategic guidance to their organizations. And together with senior management, they're also responsible for setting the tone of an organization, setting the tone at the top. Boards approve uh, risk management frameworks, uh, risk management strategy and risk appetite. They are typically also responsible for monitoring and assessing the effectiveness of the management of risk in an organization. And boards delegate usually to a risk committee responsibility for governance of of risk decision making, um, including establishing a view of actual risk positions relative to appetite and the quality of underlying policies, processes and controls. Uh, Turning to regulators, uh, the Australian financial system is overseen by the Council of Financial Regulators. Uh, And that's made up of four agencies, namely APRA, which has responsibility for prudential supervision, ASIC, which has responsibility for market integrity and consumer protection, essentially conduct, 
the Reserve Bank of Australia, which has responsibility for monetary policy, overall financial system stability, and the reputation of the payment system. And finally, the Australian Treasury, which has responsibility for advising the government on financial stability issues and on the legislative and regulatory framework underpinning financial system infrastructure. It's important to note that regulators do not aim to ensure that financial institutions never fail. Instead, their remit is to promote effective governance of risk, help ensure that markets are well informed, and help minimize the adverse impact or contamination effects of a distressed organization. Elizabeth, that's an interesting point. If we think about that framework uh, of regulatory uh, oversight, uh, that takes place. The, the relationship between regulators and institutions is obviously really important. I think it is a very interesting point, actually, because in the work that I did recently to examine the cultural traits that help boards be more effective in their oversight role, there were three characteristics that stood out. There were alignment of purpose, trust and respect between the, uh, the board and management and so that's that's speaking within an organizational environment but if you think about culture as a system issue and I think there's many examples that people can think about um, where it's not just drivers within an organizational environment that that influence behavior but actually there are uh, influences outside the organization as well like from the regulators or competitors or customers or um, then maybe we should be thinking about the relationship between institutions and regulators and the degree to which we have alignment of purpose, trust and respect between those two very important components of the system. Rahul, if I think for a moment about the, the Royal Commission into the financial services, banking and, and superannuation sector, culture was something that was highlighted quite clearly um, in Commissioner Haynes' report um, in a number of ways and, and a number of uh, different points. We're now nearly a year on from that report coming down. Uh, what changes have you seen? Quite a, quite a few, actually. Many of them are a work in progress. But it's worth starting um, at the beginning, as it were. So during, during the Royal Commission, blame for many of the industry's issues were directed by the Commissioner squarely at boards um, and at senior management. And he also coined um, a rather memorable phrase, which is governance, remuneration and culture march together. And so not surprisingly, what we're seeing as a consequence of that um, are a number of things. Well, the first is greater scrutiny and a raising of the bar on governance practices. And specifically, we're seeing boards are more demanding, more probing, and they're becoming a lot more hands-on to a point where some believe the line between um, governance um, and management is in some instances becoming blurred. Executive management are also becoming a lot more demanding of management teams. Um, we're seeing a much greater focus on organizational culture um, and conduct, especially as it relates to the treatment of customers. Uh, the customer's voice is starting to, to um, receive much greater prominence within most financial institutions that we deal with, if not all of them. There's a greater level of focus and attention on 
uh, what are generally referred to as non-financial risks. Um, it's a bet noir for me. I don't believe there are any risks that are non-financial because everything has a financial consequence at the end of the day. Um, but focus on customer outcomes, on regulatory issues, on operational risks um, are receiving much greater greater prominence. The other area where we're seeing change is a significant increase in the investment uh, in risk management um, systems um, and in remediation projects. Uh, Risk management uh, systems, processes and controls have in the past lacked uh, investment and what we're seeing is an uplift in the quality of that. That'll take a few years to to flow through, uh, but most organizations are making a solid, solid start. Risk culture that um, Elizabeth has spoken to before is an area that um, is being uh, put under the under the microscope. Uh, previously, there was a reticence to look at risk culture separately to organisational culture. There's an acceptance that. Uh, specific attention to risk culture is much needed uh, and, and by that I mean articulating the desired risk-related behaviours that need to be embedded within an organization's culture. Um, and then um, a couple of other points. Um, one is we're seeing a, a less legalistic approach uh, to issues. Uh, remuneration. Inevitably, we're seeing um, a fairly significant change in remuneration practices It's fair to say that previously short and long-term incentives were regarded as entitlements. Several organizations are now withholding those incentives uh, where performance, particularly across some of the softer measures of of, uh, risk culture, are falling short of uh, acceptable standards. Um, And there's one final point, and that is uh, the stance taken by by regulators. Uh, In the past, and I think this this is generally quite well known, uh, regulators tended to negotiate with their constituents um, a lot more than they are now uh, willing uh, to do. Um, in fact, what we're seeing uh, is not only the introduction of more regulation, but we're seeing regulators, and by that I mean particularly ASIC and APRA, take a much tougher stance on the enforcement of existing regulation. Yeah, I think there's. you've just described, Rahul, quite a, a number of actual changes and um, some progress that's been made but I would I would probably characterize most of those as the industry and the system is leaning into the problem and I, I, I have a sense that over the next couple of years there will be a lot of uh, a high level of expectation and possibly some impatience if we don't start to demonstrate not just leaning in, but um, evidence that we have genuinely changed the embedded culture that exists within these organisations. And I think this is a danger zone because with impatience can come uh, penalties if you don't demonstrate that there has been change. And... um, and, and actually, we need to be careful we're not setting an impossible task that people feel that they have no choice but to suggest that they are meeting. Actually embedding new behaviours and new norms actually requires new history on, on which to create those norms. So that will be a process that takes a number of years and um, we'll need to be patient and we'll need to be 
actually uh, um, really demonstrating staying power <laughs> because it's tough to keep on on with an agenda for a number of years that will be quite hard I think. And that's interesting isn't it because what you've actually got to do is be quite realistic at the outset about the pace of change uh, and you need to have faith in the changes that you're making even when the results might not happen overnight um, but also and this is a challenge of course is that we exist in a, in a world of social media and media and, and, and all of those sorts of things there is an expectation amongst perhaps the public and perhaps um, in the media that change will happen really fast and that things will change overnight. So I, I agree with Elizabeth. Um, there are a number of changes afoot, but they will take time to fully embed themselves into organisational culture and conduct. It's fair to say that all key stakeholders, um, including the community at large, is impatient and they are looking for results sooner rather than later. The regulators are playing their part in putting their foot on the accelerator to ensure that change happens quickly. One good example is the introduction of the BEAR legislation, and BEAR stands for the Bank Executive Accountability Regime. A little bit of uh, context. Most, if not all, organizations suffer from um, fuzzy accountabilities uh, to a greater or lesser extent. The lack of clear ownership can be a scourge when it comes to preventing problems. Also, human nature being what it is, people duck and weave and finger point when, when there's a problem. Um, in fact, um, in their self-assessments, which they did in 2018, all, all banks acknowledged that accountability was an area that required a lot of attention. The Bear regime is, is assisting by bringing clarity to who is responsible for what activities and what risks. And what that is doing is focusing people's minds in relation to precisely who is responsible for what with regulatory penalties attached to non-performance. And I think this is a great um, one to talk a little bit about, actually, because Bear is very similar to SMR in the UK. And there was a similar narrative that was uh, at play before SMR hit hit the banks there, uh, which said that, SMR was just intended to um, be able to apply consequences to individuals. In actual fact, a lot of the feedback that has followed the rollout of SMR is that it helps people to clarify what they're responsible for and that clarity can in some ways provide more safety because one of the most, um, one of the reasons why people might not feel safe is that they don't know what they're going to be held responsible for and that is a scary thing because you don't know what what mistakes you might make or what you'll be held uh, accountable for so bear in some ways i actually think if we reflect on it is should be helping us to feel safe rather than making us feel less safe this conversation is interesting we we talked in a previous episode of the podcast about social license to operate and how organizations have to justify that license um Raul it's, it seems in our conversation around culture today that that uh that sort of leaps out again at me um any thoughts on that absolutely the the hard work that's being done to rebuild trust by most large organizations if not all will need to continue as we all know, there's, there's an asymmetry of knowledge between institutions and their customers, 
And the community, therefore, increasingly expects organizations to be transparent, fair, and scrupulously honest. There, there's an expectation that if there's an issue, it needs to be fixed, fixed fairly, and fixed quickly. What we're seeing is a, an inexorable shift from uh, the old um, legal principle of caveat emptor towards caveat vendita. So we're moving from buyer beware to closer to seller beware. It's a bit like the food industry. So when you buy food, you have an expectation that when you consume it, you're going to be well, let alone alive at the end of, uh, the end of eating it. Um, and a couple of big tests are being applied um, to the financial services industry. Uh, the first one is, are products and services, in fact, fit for purpose? The second one is to apply the principle of not just can we, but should we? And that's a very big test that a lot of organizations are taking extremely seriously. We're seeing increasingly financial institutions ensure that the voice of all stakeholders, in particular customers, employees, regulators, etc., are being heard clearly and carefully. And I see this as a permanent shift from where the industry has been, which is an excessive focus on shareholders to the exclusion of other stakeholders. I, th I think there's one other really important point. And that is to ensure that organizations are addressing the root causes of all the issues. Yes, many of the problems are being caused by conduct and culture, but in part also by poor data, poor systems, poor processes and inadequate controls. And what do I mean by that? It's really important for people on the front line to have all the right information at the right time in order to deal with customers fairly. For example, much was made during the Royal Commission of an organization that charged a deceased person's estate um, insurance premium. I, for one, don't believe that was done in a willful, dishonest way, but instead data systems processes did not produce the information to the front line to ensure that that did not happen when somebody passed on. That's an example of what I mean by focusing on the root causes. Uh, Elizabeth, let's look ahead and let's be optimistic. Let's think about the changes that we'd like to see in culture, say, over the next sort of five-year horizon. What would you like to see change? You know, if I think about the biggest shift that I think would make a difference... It's the way we think about culture. And at the moment, what I would love to see is a more objective and neutral and non-judgmental stance when it comes to understanding that behavioural norms emerge within systems because of formal and informal drivers and they reinforce various outcomes some outcomes that we want and some that we don't. And I think if we can get away from looking at culture as a good or bad thing and rather just look at what is there and whether it's in alignment with, with, with what we desire and if it's not, what are the different factors that are driving it and what do we need to, need to do to, to nudge them in a different direction.
That was cultural risk expert Elizabeth Arzadon in conversation with Minta Ellison partner Rahul Chowdhury. For more information about these issues and more, visit MintaEllison.com forward slash podcasts. In particular, you may be interested in our episode, A Social Licence, The Future of Business, where we discuss ethics, trust and reputation with Minta Ellison partner Geraldine Johns-Putra and Rupert Younger, the founder and director of the Oxford University Centre for Corporate Reputation. To hear that and all our current episodes, head over to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you catch all of our future episodes too. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have any feedback or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on social media or via the contact page of our website. In the meantime, goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.